All right. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Welcome to the Late Late Show with your host, Noel Joshua Hadley. And uh, originally, I intended this to be no more than two weeks. And last week, I was like, I got to, got to the hour mark. I'm like, I'm, I'm done. I'm fried. So here we are. We're going to finish up the uh, Sea Serpent. So if you have made it to the third video, congratulations. And I know that many of you, you know, I, I, I went from like 50 views ending the last video till I'm down to five today, which means that most people are like, I'm checking out. I'll see you in the morning, uh, which is fine. So uh, where did we leave off last week? We have this uh, this creepy artwork here of a sea serpent picking up a whale and doosh, dunking it down in the water or whatever. Um, yeah. So and then we see here a sea serpent attacking or attacking attaching whale I should say attacking whale a remarkable and independent cooperation of modern date comes from the japan seas it was reported both in local papers and in the san francisco californian mailbag for 1879 from which i extract the notice and the illustrative cuts he says figure 75 so uh, yeah, right here. So this actually was in the San Francisco mailbag newspaper. The accompanying engravings are facsimiles of a sketch sent to us by Captain Davidson of the steamship Kushu Maru and is inserted as a specimen of the curious drawings which are frequently forwarded to us for insertion. Captain Davidson's statement, which is countersigned by his chief officer, Mr. McKitchney is as follows, and here's the report. Saturday, April 5th at 11.15 a.m., Cape Satano, no, it's like Cape Satan, Cape Satano, distant about nine miles, the chief officer and myself observed a whale jump clear out of the sea about a quarter of a mile away. Shortly after, it leaked out again. Now, this is April, so it's still kind of winterish. And, of course, the whales do actually jump out in the winter months uh, down there along the tropic, along Hawaii and all that. And, of course, a lot of them, they, you know, they're jumping out of the water to, uh, to show off uh, to the ladies. It's the men that jump out to show the ladies how high they can jump, if you get my drift. But I get the feeling that they're maybe jumping for another reason here. Shortly after it leaked out again, when I saw there was something attached to it, mm, got glasses, and on the next leap, distinctly saw something holding on to the belly of the whale. The later gave one more spring clear of the water, and myself and chief officer then observed what appeared to be a creature of the snake species rear itself about 30 feet out of the water. So about 30 feet, I'm assuming, uh, well, I mean, I'm not sure how high the mast, the, the crow's nest would go, but um, it's probably pretty close to that. It appeared to be about the thickness of a junk's mast. And after standing about 10 seconds in an erect position, it descended into the water, the upper end going first. With my glasses, I made out the color of the beast to resemble that of a pilot fish. For those of us who don't know what a pilot fish is, can you give us the color? Are pilot fish green or orange or pink we don't really know it could be gray i don't know there is an interesting story of a fight between a water snake and a trout <laughs> by <laughs> a, a trout by mr aw chase assistant united states coast survey which magnus Caponer uh, uh, parve may be accepted as an illustration of how a creature of serpentine form would have to deal with a whale oh so so, okay, so how a snake, I guess, how a water snake would deal with a trout would be how it would deal with a much larger sea serpent would deal with a whale. Only as on the surface or in midwinter, it would be prevented from grasping any rocks by which to anchor itself. We may readily conceive it holding on with a, ten, a tenacious grip of its extended jaws and drawing itself up to the enemy until it could either embrace it in its coils or stun it with violent blows of the tail. And so here is a, uh, a quote. The trout at first sight was lying in midwater, hitting upstream. It was, as afterwards appeared, fully nine inches in length. So again, now we're dealing with a, a trout about this big. 
Yeah, about, about that big. Not that it probably matters on your camera. I mean, this could be 30 feet, right? If it's on like a, a big screen in the theater. It was afterward, it was as afterwards appeared fully nine inches in length. The new enemy of the trout was a large water snake of the common variety, striped black and yellow. He swam up the pool on the surface until over the trout when he made a dive. And by a dexterous mo movement, seized the trout in such a fashion that the jaws of the snake closed its mouth. The fight then commenced. The trout had the use of its tail and fins and could drag the snake from the surface. When near the bottom, however, the snake made use of its tail by winding it round every stone or root that it could reach. After securing this tail hold, it could drag the trout towards the bank. But on letting go, the trout would have a new advantage. This battle was continued or full for full 20 minutes when the snake managed to get its tail out of the water and clasped around the root of one of the willows mentioned as overhanging the pool. The battle was then up, but the snake gradually put coil after coil around the roots, with each one dragging the fish towards the land. When Has anybody ever seen this before? I've never seen a snake in the water catch a fish this way. Very interesting. I've seen snake do, you know, Unfortunately, I had to watch a snake eat a squirrel in my backyard not long ago. Um, but I've never seen this actually drag a fish out of the water in its coils. When half its body was coiled, it unloosed the first hold and stretched the end of its tail out in every direction. And finding another root made fast and now using both, dragged the trout on the gravel bank. It now had it under control and uncoiling the snake, dragged the fish fully 10 feet up on the bank. And I suppose would have gorged him, et cetera, et cetera. Captain Dervar follows Pontopidan, probably unwittingly, in identifying the sea serpents with the Leviathan of Scripture, quoting Isaiah, that would be chapter 27, verse 1. In that day, Yahuwah, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. As I read the above passage, it is the dragon that is in the sea, and not the Leviathan, which should be identified with the sea serpent, unless the two, dragon and Leviathan, are in opposition, which does not seem to be the case. These various narratives which I have collected are, for the most part, well attested by the signature or declaration on oath of well-known and responsible people. Captain Dravar, in the small pamphlet which he had printed for private circulation sets, does any thinking person imagine I could keep command over men with a deliberate lie in our mouths? That's a good point. And a similar question may be asked with, I think, the possibility of only one reply in the case of the narrative of Captain M. McCuho and other officers and commanders in various navies and merchant vessels and of the numerous other reputable witnesses who have affirmed either as a simple statement or an oath that they have been seen sundry remarkable sea monsters. I use the expression, I think, because of course there is the possibility of skepticism. So here's a quote. Authority in matters of opinion divides itself, say, into three principal classes. There is the authority of witnesses. They testify to matters of fact. The judgment upon these is commonly, though not always, easy. But this testimony is always a substitution of the faculties of others of our own, which taken largely constitutes the essence of authority. This is the kind which we justly admit with the smallest jealousy. Yet not always. One man admits, another refuses. The authority of a, of a sea captain and a sailor or two on the existence of a sea serpent. I, for my part, belong to the former of these two categories. I believe in the statements that I have recorded. And in the following reasoning, address only those who do likewise. That mistakes, that mistakes have occasionally occurred is undoubted. Mr. Uh, I guess that's Mr. Goss records two instances in which long patches of seaweed so far ex excited the imagination of captains of vessels as to cause them to lower boats and proceed to the attack. The credibility of ghost stories generally is much affected when supposed apparitions are investigated and traced to some simple cause. And the hyper-skeptical may argue on parallel grounds that the transformation, in some few instances, 
of a supposed sea serpent into seaweed or the admission of the plausible suggestion that it has been simulated by a seal, a string of porpoises, or some other very ordinary animals largely affects the whole question. And I, I've stated this before that, um, you know, when you're an outsider and you hear these cases, uh, you know, you, you always, you usually go to that. Oh, you know, it's just a, a blotch of light or, you know, whatever. It was like a, a weird bear, you know, a sickly bear walking up right away. You hear all these things, but I have spoken, I know I have never spoken to anyone who has uh, seen a sea serpent. And I, I personally think that um, they migrated further up north into the greater realm uh, beyond globe earth. Some of you are like, what? what is this guy talking about? This guy. <laughs> but for those of you who know what I'm talking about uh, with the moon map and all that and the greater realm, I think they, they moved on. I think they migrated and moved on further north. Uh, but uh, people people who see these things, like it, like when someone sees Bigfoot, I spring this up every week, but when someone is in the presence of Sasquatch, I've spoken to enough people, dozens and dozens of people who've said this, and they said they were skeptics. They never would have believed it, believed it themselves, but when you're in his presence, when you're standing right in front of him, you will never forget that moment. And everyone's like, you know, making all these excuses like, no, I know what I saw. And this would undoubtedly be the case if the conditions of the several examples were at all similar. But the hesitation or temporary misapprehension of captains or crews in a thousand instances as to the nature of a string of weed um, on the surface and lashed into fantastic motion by the surge of the ocean waves has absolutely no bearing on the positive stories of a creature which is seen in calm fords and bays to roll itself coil after coil uplift its head high above the water, exhibit uh, capacious jaws armed with teeth, conspicuous eyes and paws or paddles, which pursues and menaces boats, presents a tangible object to a marksman, and when struck disappears with a mighty splash. And we've seen this time again. And they're, again, they're always in like July, August, maybe early September, calm waters, no wind, warm day. Uh, I know the perfect example. I just thought of this. If you guys don't know this, uh, when I am not in my office, as you see here, I'm actually at the uh, Hilton right now down on the Gulf Coast of Florida. But uh, I actually, my wife and I, we live in an alligator preserve in South Carolina. Our house is right on the water. There are alligators out there. And there have been many times where, you know, we go, I go out, you know, kayaking or whatever, or I'm just sitting on my porch and I'm watching them and I go, hmm, is that a log or is it an alligator? And sometimes I go, I think that's a log. And I've gone up to him and go, oh, nope, it's an alligator. And there's other times I go, uh, that's an alligator. And it turns out to be a log, right? But when you have your sighting, like there are, it's like, I know that's an alligator. <laughs> there's moments where like, yeah, that's an alligator. It's not a log, right? Same thing. All right. The probability of a gigantic seal or of a string of porpoises being mistaken for a sea serpent by post captains and their officers in the Navy is small. And um, yeah, I'll give you another quick story because because I am I spend my winter months down here on the beach. We live in our camper on the sand on the beach and I'm there working all day and I have a perfect, perfect you know, full IMAX like view of the ocean. I, I see the sun rise and set facing south on the beach and there will be, I'll count 30 to 50 dolphins out there. You see them go up and down, up and down. Never once did they go, that's a sea serpent. Like, clearly a difference. I, I would imagine if I saw a sea serpent, I'd go, that's not a dolphin. Let's see. Let me read this again. The probability of a gigantic seal or of a string of porpoises being mistaken for, for a sea serpent by post captains and their officers in the Navy is small. But becomes almost, if not quite, impossible when the observers are fishermen on coasts like those of Norway, who have been in the habit of seeing seals and porpoises almost every day of their lives. We may therefore freely grant that occasional mistakes have arisen, just as we have admitted that undoubtedly many hoaxes have been indulged in, unfortunately. And it's these hoaxers that, you know, destroy it for all the legitimate cases out there. People are looking for that, you know, just that quick fame, and they think they're going to fill some empty void in their life. A rational and commonplace explanation is quite possible in some cases, 
as, for example, in that of a creature of abnormal appearance seen by the crew of Her Majesty's yacht, the Osborne in the Mediterranean, which was suggested with great probability to have been, if I remember correctly, some species of shark, while the supposed sea serpent washed up on the Isle of Stronza in 1808, proved on scientific examination to be a shark of the a genus Celace, probably belonging to the species known as the uh, barking shark. The great oceanic bone shark, known to few ex uh, except whalers, which has been stated to reach as many as much as 60 feet in length, may also occasionally have originated a misconception, and there must be still remaining in the depths of the ocean undescribed species of fish, a bizarre form and probably gigantic size, the occasional appearance of which would puzzle an observer. What do we have here? Uh, another marine monster, figure 76, a sketch in the Gulf of Suez from HMS Philomo, October 14, 1879, from the graphic, November 1879. For example, in November, so he's going to talk about this illustration right here. For example, in November 1879, an illustration was given in the graphic of another marine monster professing to be a sketch in the Gulf of Suez from HMS Philomo, accompanied by the following descriptive letter press. The strange monster says Mr. W.J. Andrews, assistant paymaster, HMS Philomo, was seen by the officers and ship's company of the ship at about 5.30 p.m. on October 14th when in the Gulf of Suez, Cape Zafarana, varying at the time, northwest 17 miles, latitude 28 degrees, 56 north, long, longitude 32 degrees, 54 east. When first observed, it was rather more than a mile distant on the port bow, its snout projecting from the surface of the water, and strongly marked ripples showing the position of the body. It then opened its jaws, as shown in the sketch, and shut them again several times, forcing the water from between them as it did so in all directions in large jets. From time to time, a portion of the back and dorsal fin appeared at some distance from the head. After remaining some little time in the above described position, it disappeared. And on coming to the surface again, it repeated the action of elevating the head and opening the jaw several times, turning slowly from side to side as it did so. On the approach of the ship, the monster swam swiftly away leaving a broad track like the wake of a ship and disappeared beneath the waves. The color of that portion of the body that was seen was black, as it was also the upper jaw. The lower jaw was gray around the mouth, but of a bright salmon color underneath, like the belly of some kinds of lizard, becoming redder as it approached the throat. The inside of the mouth appeared to be gray with white stripes, parallel to the edges of the jaw, very distinctly marked. These might have been rows of teeth or of some substance resembling whalebone. The height of the snout, snout was elevated above the surface of the water, was at least 15 feet, and the spread of the jaw quite 25 feet. Strangely enough, a proximate counterpart of this fish, but of mimic size, was made known to science in 1882. My attention was called by Mr. Strike of the German consulate in Shanghai to a description of this in the Daheim. It sounds like a German word, Daheim. An illustrated family paper published in Leipzig with an illustrative figure from which I inferred that the monster seen by the crew of the Philomo was only a gigantic and adult specimen of a species belonging to the same order, perhaps to the same genus as the, uh, I don't even know what that is. What is that? Uh, Europe Pharnix. Hmm, that's a word I've never encountered before in my life. Some of you are like, well, you must have not taken marine biology. Actually, I never did. Adapted, adapted to live in the depths of the ocean and only appearing upon the surface rarely and as the result of some abnormal conditions. I gave uh, box similes of both engravings in order that my readers may draw their own comparison. The letterpress of the Daheim is as follows. So he's throwing like, you know, some brownie points out there to the you know or uh, uh, throwing a bone out there i guess to the people who say there are no sea serpents they're just seeing other things he's like okay some of the time you know they are seeing something they don't know what it is nobody had but in this case it you know nobody knew what it was at the time so it was a sea monster to them anyways here's the quote a new fish the deep sea explorations of last year which extended over eight thousand meters in depth 
brought to light some very extraordinary animals of which up to the present date we have no idea. The most curious one was founded by the French steamer Le Traveleur, on which there was a staff of naturalists, and of the number was M. Milne Edwards. They were entirely devoted to deep sea dredging. Between Morocco and the Canary Islands at 2,300 meters depth, the dredge caught a most wonderful animal, which at the first glance nobody thought to be a fish. The fish, of which we give here a picture, dwells on the bottom of the sea where the water is uh, plus five degrees Celsius in a kind of red slime composed of the shelves of small globigerinae. On account of its curious mouth, it has been called Europe Herinix uh, pilionoides, the pelican-like broad jaws. This creature is distinguished from all its class by the peculiar construction of its mouth. Its underjaw being of a structure different from that of any other fish, possessing only two small teeth and a big pouch of most expansible. Oh, there's a picture of it there. Okay, so this is the the creature uh, discovered. That is a that's a <laughs> kind of like a wormy sea serpent to me. Reminds me of something from Dune. You know, it comes out of the comes out of the sand. Uh, wait, hold on. What was the last sentence? Uh, and a big pouch of most expansible skin, similar to the sock which a pelican has under it, on, on its underjaw. Okay. So it's kind of described like a pelican mouth there. Okay, got it. In this sack, it, it, the broad jaw, collects its food. And as its stomach is of very small dimensions, we may, from analogy with other fishes, conclude that it digests partly in this sack. I have to be honest, I've never seen this creature before. This this is I, if I saw this, I'd be like, that's a that's a sea monster. The swimming apparatus of this fish is not much developed and reduced to a number of spines erect from the back and the belly. The pectoral, the pectoral fins, which are immediately behind the eye, are also very small. So that we may conclude from this that the this fish does not move much and is not a good swimmer. It only inhabits the bottom of the sea. It's uh, right down there in the octopus's garden. Its body decreases gradually backwards till it finishes in a string-like tail. The organs for breathing are not much developed. Six slits or gill apertures allow the water to enter. The color of the fish, the size of which we do not find in our authority is velvet black. Before proceeding further, I must point out that we may dismiss from our minds the possibility of the so-called sea serpent being merely a large example of those marine serpents of which several species and numerous individuals are known to exist on the coast of many tropical countries. For these are rarely more than from four to six feet in length. Uh, that's not that big, four to six feet. I was, ex I was imagining something bigger. Yeah, four to six feet, that, that you know, length of my body, right? I'm 5'11". Although Dampier mentions one which he saw on the northern coast of Australia, of course, they all grow bigger in Australia, right? Which was long, but the length is not specified and as big as a man's leg. He gives a curious instance of these biters being bits, which he observed not far from, from Skewton's Island off New Guinea. And this is what he says. On the 23rd, we saw two snakes and the next morning, another passing by us which was furiously assaulted by two fishes that had kept in company five or six days. They were shaped like mackerel and were about the bigness and length and of a yellow greenish color. The snake swam away from them very fast, keeping his head above water. The fish snapped at his tail, but when he turned himself, that fish would withdraw and another would snap. So that by turns, they kept him employed. Yet he still defended himself and swam away at a great pace till they were out of sight. Leguat speaks of a marine serpent over 60 pounds in weight, which he and his comrades in misfortune captured and tasted when marooned by order of the governor of the Maritius on some small island off the harbor about six miles from the shore. And he says, it was a frightful sea serpent, which we in our great simplicity took for a large lamprey or eel. This animal seemed to us very extraordinary. For it had fins. Okay, so let's pay attention to this. It has fins. And we knew not that there were any such creatures as sea serpents. 
Does it have scales? That's the question. If it has fins and scales, it is a clean animal and edible. And if it doesn't have uh, scales, then you want to throw it back. That's a word of wisdom to everyone out there. Just throw it back. If you pull it up, no, no, uh, no scales, throw it back. Moreover, we had been so accustomed to discover creatures that were new to us, both at land and at sea, that we did not think this to be any other than an odd sort of eel that we never had seen before, yet which we could not but think more resembled a snake than an eel. In a word, the monster had a serpent or crocodile's head and a mouthful of hooked, long, and sharp teeth. When our purveyors came, we related to them what had happened to us and showed them the eel's head, but they only said they had never seen the like. So if you catch an eel, throw it back. Catch a sea serpent if it has scales and fins, a couple grabs. In spite of Liguat's impression, I think it was only some species of conger eel. Bummer. Marine serpents are abundant on the Malay coast, and particularly so in the Indian Ocean. Um, Nibiru says, and here's his quote, in the, Indian, in the Indian Ocean, at a certain distance from land, a great many water serpents from 12 to 15 inches in length. If that's correct, 15 inches, right? So we're talking, you know, a little bit longer than a ruler, are to be seen rising above the surface of the water. When these serpents are seen, they are an indication that the coast is exactly two degrees distance. We saw some of these serpents for the first time on the evening of the 9th of September. But that has to be a misprint. That has to be feet. 12 to 15 feet? I mean, you're on a ship. What are you going to see a 12 to 15 inch snake out on the ocean rising above the waves? Uh, probably not. We saw some of these serpents for the first time on the evening of the 9th of September. On the 11th, we landed in the harbor of Bombay. Well, okay, maybe that's it there. So maybe it really is just a 15-inch snake. These sea snakes are reputed to be mostly, if not entirely, venomous. Their motion in the water is by uh, undulation in a horizontal, not a vertical. Okay, there you go. So it, it's going, you know, like this, side by side, just like a snake would, not up and down like a sea serpent. They're not going in a vertical direction. They breathe with lungs. Their home is on the surface, and they would perish if confined for any considerable period beneath it. All right. And you see there, that's a, a Scali opus atlanticus. It was killed on the seashore near Boston in 1817, and at that time supposed to be the young of the sea serpents. So they thought maybe that was a baby sea serpent. But it obviously probably swam parallel instead of uh, vertical. It is an open question whether congregate eels may not exist in the ocean depths of far greater dimensions than those of the largest individuals with which we are acquainted. Wait, I just, that's so creepy up in Boston that they caught a sea snake. Like just, ugh, just I mean, there's already enough things in the ocean. I don't want to be, see a snake swimming next to me, you know? Major Wolf, who was stationed at Singapore while I was there in 1880, gave me information which seems to corroborate this idea. He stated that when dining some years before with a retired captain of the 39th Regiment, then resident at Wicklow, the later informed him that having a, upon one occasion gone to the coast with his servant in attendance on him, the later asked permission to cease continuing on with the captain in order that he might bait. Well, this doesn't sound like it's going to go well while he's bathing. That's another, you know, just thing I don't want coming at me when I'm bathing a snake. Having received permission, he proceeded to do so and swam out beyond the edge of the shallow water into the deep. A coast guardsman who was watching him from the cliff above was horrified. <laughs> he could see, like, you know, you can kind of, like, from up on the cliff, right, you can kind of, like, see the sharks down there, you know, like the shadows in the water that a swimmer on the surface couldn't see. So a Coast Guardman who was watching him from the cliff above was horrified to see something like a huge fish pursuing the man after he had turned around towards the shore. He was afraid to call out lest the man should be perplexed. The man, however, heard some splash or noise behind him and looked around and saw a large head, like a bulldog's head, projecting out of the water as if to seize him. He made a frantic rush shoreways 
and striking the shallow ground, clambered out as quickly as possible, but broke one of his toes from the violence with which he struck the ground. The story was confirmed by a Mr. Burbage, a farmer, who stated that on one occasion when he himself was bathing within a mile or so of the same spot, the water commenced swirling around him, and that being alarmed, he swam rapidly in and was pursued by something perfectly corresponding with that described by the other narrator, and which he supposed to be a large conger eel. In each case, the length was estimated at 20 feet. Mr. Gosse gives the greatest length record recorded at 10 feet. We were only acquainted with a small and certain proportion of the sea serpent stories. We might readily imagine that they had been originated by a sight of some monstrous conger, but there are details exhibited by them taken as a whole which forbid that idea. We must therefore search elsewhere for the affinities of the sea serpent. And first, as to those authorities who believe and who disbelieve in its existence, Professor Owen in 1848 attacked the, I guess that's the Daedalus story in a very masterly manner and extended his arguments so as to embrace the general non-probability of other stories which had previously affirmed it. He was, in fact, its main scientific opponent. Sir Charles Lyell, you ring a bell? one of uh, Darwin's uh, contemporaries. Sir Charles Lyell, on the other hand, was, I believe, persuaded of its existence from the numerous accounts which he accumulated on the occasion. Wow. <laughs> so it sounds like, you know, uh, Lyell's a pro sea serpent here, which he accumulated on the occasion of his second visit to America, especially evidence procured for him by Mr. J.W. Dawson of Pictou, as to one scene in 1844 at Erisag near the northeast end of Nova Scotia, and as to another in August 1845 at Miragomish in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Agassiz also gave in his adhesion to it, and he says, I have asked myself in connection with the subject whether there is not such an animal as a sea serpent. There are many who will doubt the existence of such a creature until it can be brought under the di dissecting knife, but it has been seen by so many on whom we may rely that it is wrong to doubt any longer. And I think for these two dozen really good accounts he has, there had to be hundreds, if not thousands, of sightings. There had, I mean, there were probably so many stories that never recorded down. You know, nobody talked about it, kept it close to the chest. The truth is, however, that if a naturalist had to sketch the outlines of an ichthyosaurus or plesiosaurus from the remains we have of them, he would make a drawing very similar to the sea serpent as it had been described. That is very interesting. I don't think a plesiosaurus is a sea serpent, but I could, I could see that point. There is reason to think that the parts are soft and perishable, but I still consider probable that it will be the good fortune of some person on the coast of Norway or North America to find a living representative of this type of reptile, which is thought to have died out. Mr. Z. Newman was the first scientific man to absolutely affirm his belief in its existence and to indicate its probable zoological affinities. And he was ably followed by Mr. Ghosts, who in the charming work already frequently quoted, exhaustively discusses the whole question. Mr. Ghost, however, to my mind, forgoes a great portion of the advantage of his argument by a too limited acceptance of authorities and leaves untouched, as have all who preceded him, the question of the breathing apparatus of the creature and also omits insisting, as he might well have done, on the remarkable coincidence of the seasons and climatic conditions at and under which the creature ordinarily exhibits itself which may be quoted first as an argument in favor of the reality of the different stories. That, that comes, you know, I, I keep saying summertime, August, calm, uh, warm weather, calm, no wind. And secondly, as affording indications of the nature and habits of the creature to which they relate. Both Mr. Newman and Mr. Ghost, moreover, labored under the disadvantage of being unacquainted with some of the larger later stories such as that of the Nestor sea serpent seen in the Straits of Malacca, which appears to amply substantiate the general conclusion of which they had already happily, as I conceive, arrived. 
In nearly all the cases quoted, and in all those where the creature has appeared in the deep fords of Norway or in the bays of other coasts, the date of its appearance has been sometime during the months of July and August, and the weather calm and hot. These last summer conditions and high latitudes do not obtain for long together, so that the auspices favorable to the appearance of the creature would probably not exist for more than a few weeks in each season, and during the remainder of the year it would rest secluded in the depths of the fords, presuming those to be its permanent habitation, or in some oceanic home, if, as would seem more likely to be the case, its appearance in the bays and fords were simply due to a temporary visit, made possibly in connection with its reproduction. For were, it, were its habitation the fords constant, we should expect it to make its appearance annually instead of at irregular and distant intervals. Now, I just want to point out here that kind of like uh, alligators. I had mentioned earlier tonight that I uh, live on an alligator preserve in South Carolina, and we have observed that the alligator probably starting in October, maybe mid-October, up until the beginning of March does not eat. Well, not eat any food because the uh, the weather gets so cold up there that if it it's cold-blooded, mind you, so it cannot digest the food. It needs warm weather. And so it, it comes out very hungry in March, April, and it will eat. And it has to be done digesting by the time the weather gets cold or else they will die um, from the lack of digestion. And so I could see the same thing with these sea serpents. If they're going to you know, consume something big like a whale or you know, some big hunk, hunk of meat, they're going to do it in the summer months. They're going to digest it, and then they're going to go back to the bottom. Maybe they only feed once a year, right? We must also infer that it is a non-air-breathing creature. Professor Owen, in his very able discussion of the De Deleuze story, bases his main argument against the serpentine char uh, character of the creature seen in this and other instances on there being either no undulation at all of the body or a vertical one, which is not a characteristic of serpents, and on the fact of no remains having ever been discovered washed up on the Norway coast. And he says, quote, now a serpent, being an air-breathing animal with long ves vesicular and uh, receptacular lungs, dives with an effort and commonly floats when dead, and so would the sea serpent. Now he's saying that the sea serpent should also float when dead until decomposition or accident had opened the tough entugements in, in, in and let out the imprisoned gases. During life, when it kind of blows up, right, expands and, and pops, uh, in its decomposition. During life, the ex exigencies of the respiration, this, this guy must be a doctor, the respiration of the great sea serpent would always compel him frequently to the surface, and when dead and swollen, it would prone on the flood, ex extended long and large, life-floating many a rood. Such a spectacle, demonstrative of the species, if, if it existed, has not hitherto met the gaze of any of the countless voyagers who have traversed the seas in so many directions. But assuming to it to be neither a serpent nor an air-breathing creature, the very cogent arguments, or cogent, uh, is that, it's getting late, guys, arguments which he applied so powerfully fall to the ground, and I may at once state that a review of the whole of the reported cases of its appearance entirely favors the first assumption, while a little reflection will show the necessity of the later. No air-breathing creature, or rather a creature furnished with lungs, could possibly exist, even for a season only, in the inland bays of populous countries like Norway and Scotland, without continually exposing itself to observation that this is not the case. Whereas there is no difficulty in conceiving that a creature adapted to live in the depths of the ocean could breathe readily enough at the surface, even for considerable periods. For we know that fish of many kinds, and notable carp, can retain life for days and even weeks, when removed from the water, provided they happen to be in a moist situation. It, again, a power of constriction, a, char a characteristic of boas and pythons, and therefore implying an alliance with them, is not necessarily indicated, as might be supposed, even by the action affirmed in Captain Trevar's story. For a creature of serpentine form attacking another might coil itself around for the mere purpose of maintaining a hold while it tore its victim open with its powerful jaws and teeth. This action is simply that of an eel which, on being hooked, grasps weeds at the bottom to resist capture. Nor are we bound to accept in any way the captain's suggestion that the monster gorged its victim after the fashion of a land serpent. 
It may as readily have torn it open and fed on it as an eel might, and it is indeed not unreasonable to suppose that so powerful a monster would find its prey among large creatures such as seals, porpoises, and the smaller uh, Now, here's the thing. So what, what he's saying is, is that all, he's given all the reasons why it can't be a sea serpent. But then it's like, okay, so because one of the arguments he gives is that we, there's no bloating corpse on the surface of the water. It's like, okay, well, have you ever seen a hundred foot bloating corpse of a of an eel? Right? I mean, I mean, these are what they're seeing. You can't just say it's an eel because there are no eels out that big. He already said that the largest measure of an eel was ten feet, and I think one guy said he saw one that was like twenty feet long or something like that. Uh, but where are the bloating corpses of these, you know, 100 foot eels, right? Or 60, 70 feet, or even 200 feet, right? That the sea serpent was formerly more frequently seen on the Norwegian coast than now, I consider probable. I agree with that. Obviously, they're non existent now. And also that its visits were, I think it's, it's really unique and special that we actually have this book, this documentation as they were on their way out. And wherever, you know, whether they're extinct or whether they've moved on is anyone's guess at this point. But I'm, I'm very grateful that we have this last minute documentation of them. Uh, as Okay, so more frequently seen on the Norwegian coast than now I consider probable, as also that its visits were connected with its breeding season and discontinued in cons consequence of the greater number and larger size of vessels, I agree with that too, and especially when they got uh, engines, you know, that they were gone. I think the engines just scared them off. And especially of the introduction of steam. As a parallel instance, I may mention that in the early days of the settlement of Australia, sperm whales resorted to the, the harbors along its coast for calving purposes and were sufficiently numerous to cause the maintenance of what were called bay whaling stations at Hobart Town, Spring Bay, and many other harbors of Tasmania and South Australia. At the present time, the sperm whale rarely approaches within 10 miles of the coast, and the small whaling fleet finds scanty occupation in the ocean extending south from the Great Australian Bight to the South Cape of Tasmania. And I mean, when was the last time that you saw a sperm whale like in Moby Dick go and, you know, attack Captain Ahab, right? When was the last time they went after, you know, you're on a cruise ship, you know, crossing down the Atlantic to the Caribbean and, oh, no, we got a sperm whale going to come take us out. Like, it doesn't happen, right? So uh, clearly even the whales, as he's saying here, like they don't come up to the coast anymore. They used to be in the, the harbors. They just used to be calving there. I guess that means having children. Mr. Goss eliminates from his concluding analysis of sea serpent stories all those recorded by Norwegian and American observers and argues only upon a selected number resting on British evidence. By this contraction, he loses as a basis of argument a number of accounts, which I consider as credible as those he quotes, and from which positive deductions might be drawn, more weighty than those of similar but merely in, uh, inferential character which he employs. The accounts of the monster seen by Hans Egid, for example, where the creature exhibited itself more com completely than it did in any of the instances selected by Mr. Goss, specifically indicated the possession of paws, flippers, fins, or paddles. While this can only be surmised that in the later cases to which I refer, from the progressive steady motion of the creature with the head and neck elevated above the surface and apparently unaffected by any undulatory motion of the body. This at once removes it from the serpent class without any necessity for the additional confirmation which the enlarged proportions of the body in comparison with those of the neck as given in Egade's amended version afforded us. Uh, I think he's saying there that that separates it from your typical snake as well. The creature seen in the Straits of Malacca and one quoted by Mr. Newman and the zoologists exhibit characters which confirm Egade's story. In the later instance, Captain uh, George Hope states that when in HMS Fly, the name of the ship Fly, I guess, the HMS Fly, why not just call it the HMS Nats or <laughs> the HMS Mosquito? I mean, why? I wouldn't want to be a captain of a fly, but whatever. In the Gulf of California, 
Now, this is cool. Cool from California. All right. The sea being perfectly calm and transparent. There you go. He saw at the moment a large marine animal with the head and general figure of an alligator, except that the neck was much longer, and that instead of legs, the creature had four large flappers, somewhat like those of turtles, the anterior pair being larger than those of the posterior. The creature was distinctly visible, and all its movements could be observed with ease. It appeared to, and I, I love it, you know, it, it's just like, um, you know, the same type of animals all across the world are going to look different, right? Um, and um, so I think that's kind of cool that, like, whether you're in Asia or Nor Norwegian waters or Boston or even California Gulf here, that um, uh, that they're going to have slightly different features. The creature was distinctly visible, and all its movements could be observed with ease. It appeared to be pursuing its prey at the bottom of the sea. Its movements were somewhat serpentine, and in an appearance of annulations or ring-like divisions of the body were distinctly per perceptible. Mr. Goss, commenting on this story, says, Now, unless this officer was e e egregiously deceived, he saw an animal which could have been no other than an inaliosaur a marine reptile large size of a saroid figure with turtle-like paddles. Um, I wonder if he's, I don't know what the enaliosaur is. I'm wondering if they're talking about a, a, actually what we would call a chronosaur, a chronosaurus. That was a the creature from uh, Jurassic World that, I won't give away the, the movie, but he was in there. In the former case, the creature was far more gigantic and robust and contra, contra uh, distinction to the slender and serpentine form more usually observed and we must consequently infer that there is not merely one but several distinct species of marine monster unknown and rarely exhibiting themselves belonging to different genera and perhaps orders but all popularly included under the title of sea serpents the attempt to classify these these presents difficulties mr goss however has very ably reviewed the somewhat scanty materials at his command and agreeing with the suggestion made originally by Mr. Newsom, has elaborated the argument that one of the old enaliosaurs exists to the present day. This form, paleontology tells us, commenced in the Carboniferous, um, I would think that's Cretaceous, but attained its maximum specific development in the Jurassic and continued to the close of the, okay, the Cretaceous period. So there you go. Uh, <clears throat> this rational, um, I, I almost feel like, I, I wish I would have looked this up before. Maybe you guys can, but I feel like that's what it's describing. Uh, this rational suggestion is supported by the collateral argument that some few uh, genoid fishes and species of Terebratula have continuously existed to the present time, that certain placoid fishes of which we have no trace and which consequently must have been very scarce during uh, uh, tertiary periods reappear abundantly as recent species, that the iguanodon is represented by the iguana of the American tropics, and that the trionic uh, chidae or river tortoises, which commenced during the uh, wielden and disappeared from thence until the present period, are now abundantly represented in the rivers of the old and new world. The points of resemblance between the northern and most often seen form of the sea serpent and certain genera of the uh, enaliosaurus, such as plesiosaurus, are a long swan-like neck, a flattened lizard-like head, and progress by means of paddles. A difficulty in this connection arises, however, in respect to the breathing apparatus. Paleontologists favor the idea that the plesiosaurus and its allies were air-breathing creatures with long necks adapted to habitual projection above the surface. And they, they often, you know, will draw, draw plesiosauruses, you know, this is what a lot of people say the Loch Ness is, uh, you know, up on the land, which is interesting because the, the Loch Ness monster, which uh, the sightings people don't realize, most of those sightings were back in like the 1930s, 100 years ago, uh, that actually... Just as many, I think, were seen on the land as in the water. Everyone looks to the water, but a lot of people said they saw this creature up on the land crossing the road. 
Such a construction and habit is, as I have before said to my mind, impossible in the case of an animal of so scarce in appearance as the sea serpents. And I am incapable of estimating how far the theory is inflexible in regard to the old forms that I have mentioned. May, the, may there not be some large marine form combining some, some of the char characters of the salamander and the uh, saurians? May not the pygmy newt of Europe, the large salamander uh, tenanting the depths of Lake Biwa in Japan, and the famous fossil form, the Homo diluvi testis of Schulzberg, have a marine cousin linking them with the gigantic forms which battled in the Ulitic seas. May not the tuft of loose skin or scroll encircling its head have some connection with a bro uh, bronchial apparatus an analogous to that of the amphibia? And was not the large fringe round the neck like a beard noticed on the one seen by Captain Anderson when in the Delta in 1861 of a similar nature? In conclusion, I must strongly express my own conviction, which I hope, after the perusal of the evidence contained in the foregoing pages, will be shared by my readers, that let the relations of the sea serpent be what they may. Let it be serpents, saurian, or fish, or some form intermediate to them, and even granting that those relations may never be determined, or only at some very distant date, yet nevertheless, the creature must now be removed from the regions of myth and credited with having a real existence, and that its name includes not, not one only, but probably several very distinct gigantic species allied or allied more or less closely and constructed to dwell in the depths of the ocean and which only occasionally exhibit themselves to a fortunate, favored, wonder-gazing crew. The end. Uh, and of course, if, you know, the, the Leviathan itself um, uh, lives in the depths of the sea. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that reading. And it looks like, uh, I'm not sure how long I've been going here tonight, but um, uh, almost one hour. So thank you everybody for tuning in to the three-parter. This concludes the Sea Serpents. And uh, next week for my Late Late Show, I'll have something else prepared for you. Another book we'll be going through of... Uh, showing how spectacular Yahuwah's uh, greater realm or his, uh, uh, this realm truly is. So good night, everybody. Uh, Shabbat Shalom one last time.